Hello and welcome to Deep Dive, the podcast equivalent of that one sunny day in a week of rainy season weather. I'm Oscar Boyd. Like most podcast listeners, you're probably listening to this episode while you're on your own. Maybe you're doing the washing up, maybe you're walking around town, or maybe you're on your morning commute. And like most listeners, when you're done listening, you'll get on with your week. If you've enjoyed this episode, maybe you'll discuss it with friends. If you didn't, maybe you'll trash it. But for one group of people, the promise of such social interaction is far from a guarantee. Instead, what follows is isolation, the continuation of what may be years of permanent seclusion from society. In Japan, the people that make up this group are known as hikikomori, and it's thought that there are about 1 million of them, or around 1% of the population. They face serious social stigma, and the issue is only slowly being seen as a problem that needs more attention. Today, we hear from staff writer Andrew McCurdy, who earlier this year met with some of these hikikomori to talk with them about their condition, and in some cases, their ongoing recovery. Um, Andrew, I'd like to start off by asking you, what first got you interested in the issue of hikikomori? Well, like a lot of people who live in Japan, um, I'd heard stories about hikikomori in the news. Um, Now and again, it pops up. And like a lot of people in Japan, I had kind of like a half understanding of what it was about, but not really a comprehensive understanding. And I always got the impression that a lot of things that you would hear or a lot of ideas that you would have about it were probably wrong. What does it mean then to be... Uh, hikikomori how is it defined by the government or health ministries well it's defined by the health labor and, and welfare ministry as someone who has remained isolated at home for at least six consecutive months without going to school or work and rarely interacts with people from outside their own immediate family so it's not really anything to do with physical spaces to do with human relationships okay so we're not necessarily talking about them being stuck in a tiny room it's more uh, they've isolated themselves from society essentially yeah social withdrawal is another term that is often used for it and how wide-ranging a problem is this in japan um, well, it first came to public attention in the late 1990s, but then it was it was generally assumed to be a phenomenon that affected young people. In December last year, the Cabinet Office, they, they took a survey of people aged between 40 and 64, which was the first time that there'd been a nationwide survey of that age group. And the results, which were published in March, revealed that um, there's 613,000 people in Japan between 40 and 64 who are believed to be hikikomori. So 613,000 who are basically completely withdrawn from society. Of that age group, yeah. And I mean, so the there was a, the same cabinet office that a, a survey in 2015 of people aged between 15 and 39, and they found 541,000. So the what has always been assumed to be a problem that affects younger people is actually the more affects older people. Mm, so in total, we have over a million people, maybe even more, who are living as hikikomori. Well, quite possibly more, because I'm sure there's a lot of people who live like that, but they just don't make their presence known, you know? A lot of people who they just, people just don't know about. So what's the demographic makeup of uh, these hikikomori? Is it mostly men or mostly women? Mostly men. Um, so for the latest survey, which um, deals with middle-aged hikikomori, um, 76.6% of them are uh, men and... of those people said that they'd lived that way for at least seven years and 37 years. Seven years. But that can vary, you know. I mean, there there are people who have lived that way for like 30 years. 30 years. What kind of reasons are given for people becoming hikikomori, you know, spending that much time withdrawn from society? 
there are lots of different reasons. It could be people who have worked and they have something has gone wrong in their working life, you know, whether they've had some kind of harassment or they just haven't got on with people or they just haven't fit into the the mould and they've been kind of scarred by that. And um could be people who quit their job to look after elderly parents because that kind of thing is quite common in Japan and they haven't been able to get back into work. It could be young people who were bullied at school or who haven't had a good time at school and they've withdrawn um, through that. Um, although it seems like one other factor that is quite important is that it can be family relationships that go bad and, and that can be the cause of it. Okay, so for your piece, you went and interviewed several hikikomori or people who described themselves as recovering hikikomori. And you included the stories of two of them, Kenji Yamase and Nao Hirokamura, in your piece. Could you tell me a bit about both of their stories and the problems they've faced? Mm. Um, maybe let's start with Kenji Yamase. Well, in Kenji Yamase's case, he has ADHD. He's in his 50s, but this was only diagnosed four years ago. And he went to law school when he was um, younger. He, he said he was okay in high school because it was like a very structured environment. But mm. then when he went to university and he had to manage his time a bit more, he just wasn't able to do it and he couldn't meet deadlines. He can't manage his time effectively. So he would work and it just wouldn't go well and he would quit. And then he would spend two or three years shut up at home because he felt like he'd failed. This is another big thing with hikikomori, the feeling of failure and the feeling of shame, mm. basically. So he, he just felt like he couldn't face going back into that environment again. And it would take him two or three years to get ready to do it again. And he would do it again and the same thing would happen. And he, would, he fell into this pattern. For about 15 years where he was working and then quitting and then being hikikomori and then working again. He lives with his elderly mother and uh, he said that his mother was very understanding and she was aware that he just wasn't cut out for society. And that, that, that is the thing, is people who don't fit the mould of society, essentially. How does it become so embedded to the point that they're, you know, six months, a year, seven years, 30 years? Because it become, it becomes more and more difficult to get out of it. So I spoke to Dr. Tamaki Saito, who is the person who coined the term hikikomori in the late 90s. And he's basically the, the foremost expert. He's a, a psychiatrist at Tsukuba University. And he said that it's really difficult once you get into hikikomori life. It's really difficult to get out of it on your own because it's not just you it's your family as well you know it just becomes like a toxic situation where it's really difficult to to get out of it without somebody intervening in some way and what about now Kimura, the other hikikomori you interviewed uh, what's his story in the case of Naohiro Kimura, he went to university to study law and he wanted to go to law school after that to study for the bar exam, but he didn't have the money to, to pay for it. So he stayed at home and he studied on his own. But he said that because he didn't have a place to go, he, he felt that, you, you know, if you don't have somewhere to actually go, then you kind of you lose your motivation and you lose your kind of sense of purpose. So he was at home on his own studying for like 10 hours a day, he said for the, the bar exam, but he you know, his mental health started to deteriorate because he's, he's in that environment. And um, 
he said that in the end he would just end up like blankly just staring at a TV screen. So that's another misconception that, you know, people think they're at home playing computer games and having a grand old time. But a lot of the time, you know, they're just paralysed by anxiety, you know, they're just staring at nothing or, you know, just racked with anxiety. That sounds like quite an awful existence. Mm. So both these two, um, Yamase and Kimura, define themselves as recovering hikikomori. But how do people get themselves out of this existence of social withdrawal? According to Dr. Saito, the biggest stimulus to get people out of it will be if someone intervenes, but if they do it in a very non-forceful way. So it could be, it might be an old friend, it might be an old teacher, it might be a family member, but not from the immediate family. Someone who can step in with a bit of perspective and and persuade them to, to go to counselling. And then they go to counselling and, and they work their way through it like that. But it's a very delicate, it's a very delicate situation because like, so for Kimura, he'd hidden himself away for 10 years, but he didn't think of himself as being a hikikomori because he used to go out and walk his dog every night in the middle of the night where no one could see him but i mean there's there's a stigma there's a real stigma to it because you are outside of society Mm. so to actually take the first step to do something about it must be really really difficult what kind of support is on offer then for hikikomori because there are so many of them you know about one percent of the entire population of japan so i I spoke to a, um, a journalist called masaki ikigami who has written about hikikomori matters for about 20 years he said that there are very few support services for hikikomori aged 39 to 60. Um, when the cabinet office announced the results of this survey, the welfare minister described it as a new phenomenon. Mm. But um, Ikigami-san was saying that it's not a new phenomenon. It's just something that the government hasn't really um, realised yet. So because of this, the support services aren't really there for people of that age, but the chances are that they will increase now that it's um, been more publicised. Um, he also said that support services for younger hikikomori, which he also said are very understaffed and very underfunded, are overwhelmingly geared towards getting them back into employment. Mm. So as if that's that's the ultimate goal. So is kind to, of make them productive, so to speak. Yeah, just get out of the house. Of yeah, get out of the house and get them into a job, and that's the main thing. But he was arguing that, you know, first of all, you've got to treat them as like people who have suffered trauma, essentially. You know, you need to think of it as if you have been in an environment where, you, where it has effectively damaged you, you can't just thrust them straight back into that straight away and expect it to be successful. When I was researching this podcast and looking through this episode, I saw quite a lot of articles talking about the abuse and forced interventions that a lot of hikikomori receive. Hmm. Is, is this something you came across when you were talking to them? Yes, well, th- this is actually how I came to know which people I should interview, the, like who the experts were and stuff, because a couple of years ago, there was a TV program where they were highlighting hikikomori support groups who just basically take the hikikomori hostage. They just, like, winkle them out of the room <laughs> and take them away in a car and, like, shut them away for a few weeks. Um, Hoping to achieve what? Well, hoping that tough love would do it, you know, rather than um, open dialogue. They thought, you know, this force was needed, basically. And so Dr. Saito and um, and Ikigami, the journalist, and some of the hikikomori as well, gave a press conference to strongly oppose it because they 
they say that it just doesn't work. And did had any of the people you interviewed experienced this kind of situation? Yeah, um, so now here, Kimura, like I say, he was living as Kimura for 10 years and it eventually ended. His parents had um, moved out and they, they came to the house one day with two police officers and two care workers and said, right, come with us to see the um, psychiatrist. And he was outraged that his parents were treating him like a criminal. And this is the other thing. This is one thing that I didn't realise until I started writing the story. I always thought that the public image of hikikomori is that they're lazy and they don't work and they just use tax money and they're sponges. I didn't realise that there was also a narrative of them being dangerous. So when hikikomori first came to public attention in Japan was in the late 1990s and there were two incidents in 2000 that happened in quick succession. One was a man in Niigata... um, was discovered to have kidnapped a nine-year-old girl nine years earlier and kept her hostage in his room. And then soon after that, there was um, a young person who hijacked a bus and um, stabbed some people in the bus. So when these stories were reported, people began to think of hikikomori as dangerous. The, um, the phrase that was used quite often was that they were like some kind of underground army, just basically waiting to either waiting to kill their parents or waiting to to harm people. And then the, that image gradually gave way to more of an image of just laziness. But in the past few weeks, this narrative has surfaced again because of what happened. Happened in Kawasaki. Now, and a man armed with a knife has attacked a group of schoolgirls in Japan. Where a man who was described as Hikikomori um, stabbed and killed some school children. And then following that, there was um, the former bureaucrat who killed his son because he said that his son was a Hikikomori and that he was likely a danger to society. So this issue has resurfaced in recent weeks. And people who are, are involved in supporting Hikikomori and you know, people like Dr. Saito and stuff, are, they're really trying to stress that it's not related. It's not because of the hikikomori that they did this. But this is something that people are talking about now. Mm. It's, it does seem strange to treat it as a criminal issue when essentially it sounds like it's a mental health issue. Well, yeah, well, I mean, it was... So the Tokyo Metropolitan Government offer support services to hikikomori, but until April this year, that was under the jurisdiction of their juvenile delinquent department. Now it's under the jurisdiction of their their health and welfare department. I was surprised that it had gone on for so long like that because it just wasn't something that that I associated with crime. But Mm. this is a misunderstanding that I had because it seems like a lot of people, that is the association they make and it's an association that is resurfacing because of what happened happened um, over the past couple of weeks. More on the topic of hikikomori after this short break. Hey Tom. Hey Alyssa. Did you catch the most recent episode of Terrace House? Yeah dude. And what'd you think? Well Risako's bold gesture, it was like the red wedding but like a mild red wedding you know? It was a big deal. Yeah my jaw dropped when it happened and I usually don't react this way to the show. If you love Terrace House as much as we do, make sure to check out Japan Times online for episode recaps and commentary. And don't forget to leave your thoughts in the comments section. New posts come out every Friday just in time for weekend reads at www.japantimes.co.jp. Welcome back to Deep Dive and this episode in which staff writer Andrew McCurdy talks to us about the issue of hikikomori. What do hikikomori do for money? How do they survive? Well, I mean, they rely on the parents. I mean, 
most of them, according to Dr. Saito, is like almost 100% of hikikomori live with their parents. And the people who I spoke to said they didn't spend much, but at the same time, they are completely reliant on the on the parents for um, for money. And if you look at um, the survey results of the hikikomori who are middle aged, 34.1% of of them rely on their parents' pension. So, so with that in mind, what kind of issues are the families of hikikomori facing? Do they face their own kind of stigma? There's a lot of social pressure in Japan to conform to certain ways. And for a lot of parents, they will feel ashamed of their child and they'll, they'll try to hide them, basically. One thing that I, I didn't mention so much in the story um, but I spoke to Dr. Saito about especially was why there are so many hikikomori in Japan. I mean, there are some in other countries as well. He says that in countries like Japan, China, South Korea, Confucian countries, he said, there's a very strong sense that the family should be together and that problems should be worked out within the family. So rather than cast the children out, they will keep them at home, but they will hide them away. Mm. He, he described hikikomori on like a macro level as social exclusion. And he he said in the West where there isn't quite such a strong culture of all the family living together, what will often happen is that if someone runs into problems, they'll become homeless. So in Japan, there's a very, there's a relatively small number of homeless people mm-hmm. and everyone thinks that's a great thing. But that's because families are keeping those people Exactly. So so he, he thinks that whether you're homeless or whether you're a hikikomori, it's two sides of the same coin. You're, you're excluded from society, but depending on the kind of society that you live in, it will be dealt with differently. So he says that, you know, when everyone says that it's a great thing that Japan has so few homeless people, he says, well, it's not quite as simple as that, because a lot of people who would be homeless if they lived in a different country, they're still not part of society. Yeah, and again, it just amazes me to such a massive scale. I think um, one of the interesting things as well about the most recent report that came out in March, um, in which over 600,000 people between the age of 40 and 64 um, were found to be hikikomori, is that it really emphasises this, uh, was it 80-50 problem? Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about what that is? Yeah, so you have a lot of people who are hikikomori and they're in their 50s and they live with parents who are in their 80s. And obviously, it's not a sustainable situation. So if, if their parents die, or if their parents get taken into nursing care, or if they get dementia or something, then they have to look after themselves. And I mean, there are welfare services available for these people, but you've got to go out and get it, you know, you have to go out and apply for it. And a lot of these people, they've lived like this for years, and they just don't know how to look after themselves. So it is a problem, and it will become more of a problem as you know the longer time goes on. I asked Dr. Saito one reason why there are more older hikikomori now, why the the average age is is older. He said one reason is that whereas in the past it used to just be something that young people would do, now the average age where people start becoming hikikomori is older. So it might be people who have worked, they've had experience of work, but it's been a bad experience and then they've withdrawn from that. But he also said one reason why the like the median age is older is because people who were hikikomori twenty years ago are still hikikomori. So it's not like there's these it's not like these middle aged hikikomori are new hikikomori. They're just they used to be young and now they're old and they just haven't got out of it.
a lot of these people, so say for example, people who have quit their job to look after elderly parents and that, and they're doing that for a while and then they just can't get back into society. I mean, they might want to, but they can't. No company will hire them because they're, they're too old. I mean, that's another problem. A lot of them, because they have these big blank spaces and their CVs, it's difficult to get back into mm. a job. You know, you go to an interview and someone say, well, what are you doing here? And they just say, well, I was doing nothing. It doesn't look good, you know. And so it, it's not just a problem of people themselves withdrawing from society. They're also being dispossessed. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that's something that, um, that Mr. Yamase was very uh, vehement about. He said that for him, it felt like it wasn't that he was withdrawn from society. It was that he was being forced to withdraw from society because it, yeah, society was excluding him. And yeah, I mean, as I say, there are lots of different people from different backgrounds who become hikikomori for different reasons. But one thing they have in common is that they don't fit the mold. And that makes it difficult for them to survive, basically. I wonder, do you get a sense from having talked to some of these hikikomori or people who are recovering hikikomori, do they feel like things are getting better for them? Yeah, I think so. I, a, a lot of them said that they were reasonably optimistic in the sense that it has been an issue for 30 years, basically. So there has become a, a greater understanding. But I don't know, I mean... You get things like, you know, these these groups that Dr. Saito was talking about that take a different approach and it's not one that uses compassion. Um, and the news is, you know, it gives people a strong image. So it's difficult to say. I mean, a lot of them were quite optimistic, but it is a difficult subject and it's a very far-reaching subject as the number of people who are hikikomori shows. I mean, it's not an easy thing to, to deal with. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today and for explaining this issue to us. Thank you. You can read Andrew McCurdy's full article on Hikikomori, as well as all his great reporting for the Japan Times at www.japantimes.co.jp. You've been listening to Deep Dive with me, Oscar Boyd. Thanks as always for tuning in. You can subscribe to Deep Dive and find more episodes on all major podcasting platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Join us on Twitter and let us know your thoughts on the episode at Japan Deep Dive. Thank you as always for listening and see you next time.